we're going to make food on us, all of it, uh, either directly or through everyone else suddenly being pressured to mm-hmm. account what they're doing because of what the, the capabilities we're unleashing now. Mm-hmm. And so um, if a consumer wants their food to start with being honest, um, meaning chemicals and how it was raised, then I think that's step one, actually. Flavor, I agree with you. That's why people buy things, but they also buy them for health, mm-hmm. right? And so um, you've got to have both. And yeah. there's no reason that those two things work together, actually, right? And as we're mm-hmm. discussing. But that that really is Greenfield's working towards being a consumer brand now. Mm-hmm. And we think the biggest following in the world sitting there waiting for us. Because I don't think anyone can trust the food right now. Welcome back to our podcast, Tasting Terroir, a series of conversations that introduce you to people that are making food healthier and possibly more flavorful for you and easier on the planet. I'm your host, Sarah Harper. That clip was from an interview I did with another one of my favorite people, Clint Brower, a farmer in Cheney, Kansas, and co-founder and CEO of Greenfield Robotics, a company that makes robots that kill weeds without tillage or chemicals. He is also helping to build a regenerative supply chain of farmers for a top pet food company. More from Clint on this and several other topics in a few minutes as part of our feature interview this week. In our discussion last week with California farmer Derek Azevedo, we explore the challenges, trade-offs, and pressures inside the, quote, messy middle of our food system, the part that connects the farmer all the way to the end consumer. Specifically, I found some of Derek's insights on how the processing system prevents some of the most flavorful foods from getting to the grocery store and why the food system is so slow to change to be very interesting and valuable for consumers like you. Derek's insights really highlight why it is so important for consumers to buy directly from regenerative or soil health conscious farmers when possible. And luckily, that is becoming more possible every day. As you may have already noticed, most of the folks we are interviewing on this podcast are farmers that are investing in the ability to cut through that messy middle and bring you healthier, more flavorful ingredients and food. As more of these opportunities emerge for farmers to find their market directly, an even greater focus will be put on the practices that they use and the outcomes that they are able to achieve. This week, we will be looking at some new technology that has the potential to scale up the benefits of regenerative agriculture, this soil health building way of farming, in a very big way. We've talked about the important role that no-till farming plays in creating healthier soil, and the fact that this is a challenge for the organic as well as the conventional farming systems, since both of them rely on tilling up the land in order to control weeds ahead of planting. What if organic or conventional farmers could plant crops without tilling and without using chemicals? And what if they could do it at a scale that could bring prices down for consumers? Well, they might soon be able to do that with the help of some amazing robots that mechanically cut the weeds in between the crop rows. This amazing breakthrough was created by Greenfield Robotics, a company located in Cheney, Kansas, co-founded by my good friend, Clint Brower. Clint is one of those guys who seems to have endless energy and a passion for using it to make the world around him a better place. With a background in farming, technology, marketing, and many other things, 
Clint has emerged as a force for good in changing the food system. Clint has actually three full-time jobs, and I'm not even kidding. He's making big leaps forward in all of them. In this week's episode, we will hear more from Clint, both about how his robots are about to bring forth a regenerative agricultural revolution, and how he is applying regenerative principles on his own farm as part of building a regenerative supply chain for a top pet food company. We start off our conversation with Clint by exploring his definition of regenerative agriculture, a mindset and a set of principles that results in restoring soil health, as we've discussed in other episodes. We'll get to hear from him how he applies this mindset on his own farm and how the robots he's building help apply it elsewhere. Here's my interview with Clint Brower. Hi, Clint. How are you? Hey, Sarah. I'm good. Good. So first of all, share with everybody, you know, your name and where you're at and what you're doing, what you're working on. Basically working on eliminating chemicals out of agriculture. And we're doing that three ways. One, my farm. Two, we have a regenerative supply chain with uh, Canada Pet Foods. And three, I have a robotics company that actually is an enabler to get chemicals out of regenerative ag. So those are three things we're doing here in Kansas. We're talking with folks to try to help them understand regenerative agriculture because it's a term that's used in a lot of different ways. And and we are super lucky to get to work with people like you in our community that are doing a lot of great regenerative principles. To start off, how do you define regenerative agriculture? I'm going to define it for about 250 million acres in the United States alone. And so for that, it basically means this. One, you do a crop rotation. Two, you don't till, you're no-till. Um, three, essentially you use cover crops when you're not growing your cash crops, right? So when you're not growing something all the way to seed mm-hmm. and you're just growing a multi-species, preferably version of something you're not going to collect for seed. And the whole point of that is to help your soil. And then the last stage of that, once you have those cover crops growing, uh, whether it's winter or summer, you want to graze those with ruminants. Uh, and ruminants is a fancy word for sheep or cattle, basically crazy people have goats. <laughs> how how did you kind of come to learning about and embracing regenerative agriculture and what it is what it is to you? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. I you know, I set out in 2010, 2011 to start trying to get chemicals out of farming. And so I did greenhouses and all this stuff and distributed into grocery stores and restaurants and direct to people's doorsteps and actually to corporations. And I figured out that, oh gosh, you know, this isn't going to scale very well. And uh, to eliminate this and uh, talk to a friend of mine who, you know, and he said, look, you need to get a no-till. And if you can figure out how to get the chemicals out, then this solves a ton of problems. And so um, that sort of led me down the path towards regenerative. And I was pursuing something I called integrated agriculture. And then one day somebody said, hey, you know, there's something similar to what you're already trying to do that someone's already kind of blazed this trail. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, so except using chemicals. And so, mm-hmm. but that's, that's how it came about. And how is it that you're practicing regenerative in your in your three different businesses? Yeah, on the farm, I mean, I believe next year we'll have up to an eight season crop rotation now. Wow, um, which is virtually unheard of here. Yeah, and so that's that's step one, and that like breaks a lot of insect cycles and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I'm excited about that. Uh, that's a, a far cry from when this farm was weed only. <laughs> and yeah, so that's that's one. And so the second thing is we uh, we're you know we're getting. And sometimes I don't get things done on time because of the robotics company, but uh, we're trying to make sure that we have cover crops planted as quickly as possible after each har- harvest or using robots before harvest, um, getting to that point probably this year. 
and basically get those cover crops always growing and multi-species is all, uh, most of what I do unless we're doing a test on a single species for the robots. And the third is we graze. And so I don't have enough animals to graze all the stuff yet um, because we're still prototyping the thing that grazes, you know, um, that. But um, the idea is that we graze every acre once a year, meaning rotationally graze it half the year, cash crop roughly half the other year. And so that's what we're doing on my farm. That's great. And what about uh, with Greenfield Robotics? Yeah, Greenfield uh, basically is the enabler uh, Mm -hmm. to make this go easier. So, Mm -hmm. you know, our first robot, we have, of course, a bunch of customers and then on my farm. So post plant in Milo that I grow or um, if I was growing corn or cotton. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but if I did, um, you know, this eliminates a lot of the herbicides and soybeans, obviously. Because your robots kill the weeds. They kill the weeds between the rows. Mechanically. Right. Mm -hmm. Mechanically. Yeah. 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 Lasers. Nothing could start a fire in a no-till environment. No. Not good. No knives. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, those things work well for Mm -hmm. a tilled uh, specialty crop and those folks that do that, it's impressive Mm -hmm. as hell, but Mm -hmm. it just won't this environment. Right. Next spot gets rid of all the herbicides. So it starts before you plant and all the way through we're in year three of testing that and the multi version Mm -hmm. of that will be uh, coming. Yeah. Soon. That's awesome. And it, cause it something like, well, exactly what you've created is, is the key to really scaling up the ability to have both no till and no chemical. Cause you know, a lot of people would like that. And but cover cropping. And cover cropping. Yeah. Right. I mean, right now terminating a multi-species cover crop is actually not always easy mm-hmm. with chemicals mm-hmm. and um, certainly without chemicals is impossible. Mm-hmm. Things like hairy beds, very hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come, they can come back and, and attack your crop before your crop's done. Um, so the thing we're developing actually would incent you to do a multi-species cover crop because it takes care of anything. And then in Canada and the, the supply chain that you're building, that's another way that you're, you're bringing regenerative forward, creating a, a market for farmers that are wanting to, to farm this way. Yeah. Look, we're fortunate enough to do a test in 2015 and, and the team you know, Canada bought into this and we started creating a supply chain back then. And there's, uh, it's a different team now than it was back then because people change at companies, but they stuck with it. So often they stuck a, with it team and it's growing really and I, throws I it all up in the It's air. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That was a shock actually. And we stuck with it and it's growing and, and, um, and they're you know, a pet food I, company. I mean, they're a pet food company. It, uh, <laughs> I just, yeah. you know, that's great. That's, I mean, our pets deserve regenerative well, food. Certainly, but so do people. <laughs> I mean, well, I, uh, you know, look, I mean, they're humans too. Yeah. And their company kind of rallies around doing good things. Yeah. And, yeah. and so not just pet food, but doing it right and doing it mm-hmm. well. And they do things that beyond the regenerative supply chain, that is pretty darn cool. Yeah. Um, so I'll give them a lot of credit. They're a very thoughtful group of folks. Yeah. And I've enjoyed working with them, honestly. And yeah. so it's really cool that, you know, we're in the tens of millions of pounds shipping now. That's and great. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good example for folks. And, uh, you know, if they lacked imagination, they can just look to what we're doing and go, oh, wow, you know, uh, this guy and, and the pet food company have, are making this work. It's not all of their ingredients. It's it's not there, but uh, we're making progress like every year. Wrapping it up, if you had to summarize regenerative agriculture, um, how would you complete the sentence? Regenerative agriculture is? A work in progress. Um, I think that it needs much more widespread adoption and, mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm not, you know, I have some ideas on how we can bring that into being, but, um, regenerative ag solves two can solve two major problems. One is carbon. 
Mm-hmm. And if we don't get this, and look, you know, we raise venture capital, we talk to investors all the time, and I I see the things that people are trying to get rid of carbon with, and they're not going to work, mm-hmm. not in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and farmers will change much faster than corporate middle managers. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. So, but we still need to create the incentives and and have the tool set um, to make it work and scale. Yeah. Right. And so that that's I think that. That is really the the big challenge right now is making it scale and scale quickly in time to defeat this carbon problem. And along with it, a lot of nutrition challenges with getting more nutrient density into the food and um, you're right. That's a really good health. point. Yeah. And you know, and then I think the last piece of that, of course, is chemicals. If you scale it all and still people are getting Parkinson's all over the place, yeah, uh, you haven't really achieved a lot. Mm-hmm. Clint, we've talked about, you know, regenerative agriculture and what is regenerative and how you're applying it. And that's, that's really helpful for people. But I think a lot of people still are, are looking at the things that they experience, which are flavor, you know, and, and taste. And then of course the health of food. And so, you know, you've had some, some interesting experiences, um, not just as a commercial farmer and what you are, and as an inventor of, you know, robots that help reduce chemicals and, and tillage and all that, which you are too. But also just as somebody who's grown your own food and tasted it yourself and, and and had different experiences and different types of growing systems. So maybe let's start with just sharing a little bit of your experience on that, those different systems and the, the difference you you saw in taste. Yeah, I've grown um, food in a bunch of different ways or ingredients or whatever you want to call them. And um, I actually started out, of course, I grew up with a garden and all that kind of stuff, but let's just start since I got back from California about 12 years ago. And I actually started growing without chemicals, vegetables outdoors, right? So I grew hundred plus types of vegetables for CSA that I started and then ended up building two greenhouses that we grew in the soil. And then my cousin and I together um, started something that um, was a hydroponic facility as well. And so we distributed into all these grocery stores, all the whole foods and all the high bees in, in Kansas City at one point with that and grew a lot of the same things in the hydroponic facility as far as greens go. So, um, and then of course, the last thing is we grow, of course, now my farm is mostly growing uh, regenerative, you know, we're headed, we're doing our best uh, regenerative. So we, we grow sheep by grazing them on our cropland, uh, grass-fed sheep. And then we, um, of course, we grow uh, grains, uh, wheat, sorghum, um, barley, um, soybeans, so on and so forth. So, and we seem to be heading more and more towards, you know, specialty on that front as well, but we're not there yet. And did you, did you notice a difference in flavor between the hydroponic and the stuff grown in, in the soil? Yeah, a world of difference. Um, it's, um, uh, that's kind of the, the, it was really interesting. And there is one crop, by the way, that I highly recommend you buy hydroponic and that is arugula. Oh, really? Arugula huh. growing hydroponic is amazing. Uh, it's got just the right amount of bitterness if they didn't let it grow too long uh, or if it's not the third growth. And uh, we sold that very well in a clamshell. And when I had, you know, people would walk up to, so I spent 30 some weekends in grocery stores. Uh, <laughs> wow. Years ago, this years mm-hmm. and uh, well before I ever showed robotics and talking to people, talking to thousands of people, right, um, in grocery stores. And it was interesting demoing that like, oh, I don't like a room. And I think, ah, you need to try. And they would. And they would buy it most of the time. 
Mm. Uh, whereas if it was arugula I grew on the ground outdoors or in a greenhouse, which, you know, we sold to houses and stuff, uh, they no way, right? It, it was arugula, right? It was peppery, it was bitter, could be bitter, um, this kind of thing. But the, the hydroponic arugula was fantastic. Other than that, Hmm. Um, most things grown in the soil have a better flavor, in my opinion, you know, and I'm sure there's other exceptions as well. Really what I started out doing was growing a lot of different tomatoes, I've grown hmm. a lot of different areas of tomatoes. And that was starting in uh, 2010. I've grown many, I mean, so many different varieties. That was interesting, clear back then growing heirlooms, uh, was my focus. And most people just had no idea the difference. Mm-hmm. And of course, in this region, which wasn't abnormal, even out in California at that time, people would be like, why do your tomatoes look so weird, right? Mm-hmm. And they couldn't tell, like, I think everyone kind of knows that now, but it was really a hard sell, mm-hmm. right? They'd like reach for the big red ones, you know, and you'd be like, well, these over here are actually a lot better. I think that's, you know, I think Jill's talked about this on some of her presentations too. Your seed selection, of course, has a lot to say as well, but we could grow those tomatoes on we had a field, we have a field around a farm, a two acre field that my mm-hmm. dad always just didn't know what to do with. So he just put basically wheat in it every year mm-hmm. and tilled it every year and would add synthetics, just like the rest of the farm was back then. Then right adjacent to it, literally you just step over a fence and it is soil that had never been tilled. Mm-hmm. That had historically, it had been quite a while, but it had everything from horses, pigs, cattle, you name it, and they could go on the barn. Mm-hmm. Those two pieces of soil right next to each other. I had them soil tested my first first or second year. The first one with all the synthetics had a pH of about 5.5. Wow. And all the nutrients, uh, magnesium, stuff like that was really low. The other one had a soil pH of, I believe, 6.3 mm-hmm. or 6.7 maybe even. And just loaded with nutrients right next to each other. Mm-hmm. What was the difference, right? Yeah. And so... Um, very interesting. So we would grow tomatoes on both of those. And it was interesting. Of course, you get a lot more yield. You have healthier looking plants on the other. You don't even have to add fertilizer. There's nothing to do there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you literally at that point, just plant the things and go and keep mm-hmm. it weeded um, relatively well. And then what, you know, that poorly grow those tomatoes and just a world of difference in ter- terms of yield. The only thing I will say that will kind of cut against the grain of what you talk about here just a little bit is this. I found that sometimes the tomatoes, when they're super stressed, were the best tasting. Mm-hmm. And believe me, on that 5.5 pH running, uh, of course, tomatoes are acidic. They like acidic soil to some extent anyway. Yeah. Uh, but, and in the stress of the summers, you wouldn't get many, but what you had were amazing. Hmm. You know? So and they so, were better in the uh, less healthy soil. <laughs> Sugar, better in terms of sugar. Right? Uh, <laughs> Clint, have I not instructed you? No, no, no. It's, it isn't. It isn't. Well, about... it's really, and it was just sugar, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, anybody who's raising tomatoes, you want to pick your tomatoes uh, within thirty minutes to an hour of the sun coming up. That's when you have the highest sugar content. Oh, interesting. Uh, in the summers, when it starts raising, uh, the temperatures raise, the plant takes back some of it. That's what I was taught. And you could mm-hmm. draw. I mean, if you pulled off the same plant at nine in the morning or eight in the morning versus two in the afternoon, world of difference. Same exact so, route. So interesting. So interesting. Yep. Um, so. Yeah, well, no, it's it's a very good point because I think that's the tendency. And I certainly, I'm human. I could fall into it too. Like we all have narratives and things that we think make sense and want to be true. And then we try to just push everything in into that. And so I, I really don't want it to be that. I, you know, it is an open question as to, 
what's the impact of healthier soil on flavor? Certainly on health, we'll know that. And and flavor is something that changes, like people's taste changes depending on what they eat. And if you eat more sugar, then you need more sugar to taste to taste something (laughs) sweet. If you eat less sugar, then you you know you a fruit tastes very sweet. You know, so um, it's all a very kind of squishy area. It's not, it's oh, not nailed down. Do this, right. right exactly. And that's, that's the time I think to have those, explore those questions, especially with people that know something about, about the well, science. And, and, and it's flavor, it's texture. It's the whole, I guess, right. flavor is our texture, but it's um, yeah, look, I mean, I eat grass fed, but I also have a farmer that grows their 4-H calf that is mm-hmm. hand fed grain mm-hmm. that I get to split every year. Yeah. It's the only one in yeah. existence. Right? And it's grain fed and it is marble. And so mm-hmm. I will eat, I have raised grass fed lamb, which mm-hmm. I love. And I'll eat grass fed beef, which I love. And it has different flavors, but I'll also eat that awesome grain fed beef. Well, that's the, that's the other thing. It's, you know, I think it's, it's about what we do most often. It's not yeah. about the treat. It's not about never having, you know, something that just tastes really good, but isn't good for you. I mean, it's about, do you have that every day? Or do you, you know, and I have a sweet tooth I'm battling. So I understand. I mean, the struggle is real, but, but I am interested in, so, you know, you, we've already talked about, you know, what you're able to do with, uh, with regenerative agriculture on your farm, but your robots and what they're able to empower, I think they're on the, the verge of empowering this whole ability to taste a place, whether or not the, the taste is, you know, right off the bat preferred, but I know that different varieties matter. But then also I've learned from Jill, of course, these microbiomes are amazing and they're different. They're very different from place to place. And so it makes sense just kind of logically that if you have a system empowered by something like your robot, so you're able to do no-till and no chemical, very hard to do on a commercial scale without something like your robots um, dealing with the weeds. Um, that that system could empower the ability to have more of the nutrients coming in naturally as opposed to artificially. And therefore, nutrients affect taste, minerals affect taste. And so I'm super excited to kind of do a taste test within our network of North Dakota wheat and Kansas wheat. And, you know, I, I yeah. know from a lot of people that bread can be kind of like a wine in terms of being able to taste different notes of this and that. And especially when it's done with whole grain and really, you're really putting the wheat forward as opposed to, you know, the other stuff. So I don't know what, what are you thinking about? I know you've, you focus a lot on climate change and, and the ability to, to uh, get chemicals out of the system for health. Have you thought about flavor and the impact that your system could maybe have on, on that too? Well, first off, you know, if we go back to the tomatoes that were growing in the 5.4 or whatever it was, 5.3, 5.5 pH, mm-hmm. really low, uh, they weren't yielding with the hoot. And there was mm-hmm. nothing resilient about that, mm-hmm. right? And, in the in, in, you know, the ones in the better soil were doing better, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you have to, you have to be, you know, just to take one more extreme case on that. Uh, when I went to Whole Foods, I took my heirlooms from the field and said, have you tasted any sweeter? And the guy said, yes, which shocked me ran the Rocky Mountain region for Whole Foods, right? Mm-hmm. It's my first meeting. Do tell. <laughs> and he said, these guys grow tomatoes in dry creek beds in California. Mm. And they're so stressed, but they get only a few tomatoes. So they're like 11 or 12 a pound wholesale. I'm oh, like, wow. I don't know who buys those. But mm. um, so 
there's a there's we're you know when I talk about that that's a, those are extreme things right. right but how do you get healthy nutritional you know and then be able to differentiate based on climate and soil mm-hmm. and so with our robots you know what we're seeking to do now is um, the little one that we've made so far that folks have seen you know does a pretty basic thing and, and eliminates some of the herbicides post plant without tillage right mm-hmm. so if you're an organic farmer uh, most of the time you're cultivating. Right. Almost always. Mm-hmm. Right. You're cultivating at some point um, at any scale. So that's or at a large scale, you know, which is mm-hmm. mostly what shows up in your grocery stores. Right. Right. So we solve that problem. Um, we help with it. Let's put it that way. The next one that's coming out that we've been testing for three years now eliminates any need for tillage, period, and any need for any chemical burn down or herbicides, period. And we proved it this spring. Uh, in early summer, and we have it documented. So we'll we'll be have a prototype of that running next year in my fields. And so it and it works with cover crops. And so it's made everything we do at Greenfield is made to work with regenerative ag. Mm-hmm. Are you risking or you're cultivating? We're just not going to work with you. Mm-hmm. It's you know, this is not where we're at. And my belief is everyone's going our direction anyway. And so that's kind of the way we're we're doing it. And the reason we do it: one, get rid of chemicals. Um, to keep the carbon in the ground. And the reason to keep the carbon in the ground, I believe, is what we're talking about here, which is the soil microbial activity. When you keep those roots down there and you get them to you know, react and help you grow the plants you have and the future plants and keeping that going. Mm-hmm. And so with our robots, um, you know, when you spray herbicides, there is an impact on that micro- microbial community, even if you don't till. Mm-hmm. I think that will help improve sort of the vibrancy and the, and the different variations you have of fungi and bacteria uh, underground just by that alone, mm-hmm. uh, eliminating herbicides. Well, and with um, with organic with the organic system too, because you know a lot of people think that organic means no chemical. It just it means no synthetic chemical. I mean, you can use natural things. Um, well, I don't know. It's potassium chloride synthetic, right? Right. So, I mean, your system can help both. Obviously, what I'm excited about in terms of the flavor piece of it, which is the least well known, but that's yeah. often that's often where people first are thinking. You know, sure there are a number of people that are very focused on health, but there are even more people I would say that are focused on does it taste good, and that you know that well, that's yeah, not a bad thing. Of that make of course that yeah, makes sense. Well, I mean, you gotta yeah. I mean, but it's kind of like white bread tastes super good, yeah. kind of. Right. I know. I know. <laughs> so until you sort of learn, oh, there's gonna be more complexity, right? It gets back to the tomatoes. There is right. there is flavor beyond sweetness. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing about um you well, some of the subtle differences between like this North Dakota or Kansas wheat, you're you're not those are gonna be completely papered over if mm. if the, the the primary thing that you're tasting is sweet, you know, if that's if that's, that's just right. overloads everything else. And um, also all that great nutrition and flavor and texture and all of that is going to be gone if it's milled into a white powder that turns right into sugar as soon as you eat it. So there's all these different pieces that come together to give us, you know, maybe this rich artisanal food system that we, you know, we had a long time ago because we we couldn't, we just didn't have as much processing ability. Um, and certainly with that has come shelf stability and all of that. But I have been finding an interesting theme too and talking with um, like Derek Azevedo last last week uh, about the processing stuff and you know processing has given us shelf life 
but it's right. taken it's taken away so much. To get that back, we have to change our habits too. We have to be willing to buy food maybe more often and not expect it to last for a month. <laughs> I mean, shelf life, if you think about it, everything was based about around refrigeration. Yeah. It's a new mm-hmm. technology. So you mm-hmm. have to consolidate. And so now you've got people going for refrigerated and now you bring all the things and you need shelf life and that's how you make money. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure those distribution mechanisms need to exist in their current form for very much longer. We mm-hmm. are much more efficient now moving things right to your doorstep. And so that, that'll be interesting. But yeah, you know, getting back to the topic at hand here, though, um, you know, so we grow sorghum. Mm-hmm. Um, we grow uh, for pet food, mm. actually. Pets are pretty well off. Um, yeah. Robots and all the pet food. We're doing a human food trial right now. So we'll find out if that works in about a week. Mm-hmm. Um, with uh, a different type of sorghum, so so that's exciting. We're uh, we're launching a barley program around here. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't decided if it's hold or holus or which variety or any of those, but I, I think there's a lot of variation to come. You mm-hmm. know, and if you think about like when you were a kid, the type of things you eat versus now, um, that subtlety you much more appreciate mm-hmm. than you did, right? I mean, think about the first time you. I don't know how you grew up, but I grew up eating a lot of times iceberg lettuce, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, still has its place. But and then the first time you bite into bib mm-hmm. or, or real romaine that's mm-hmm. grown, this is a different deal. Yeah. So, as you have, you know, been going through all of this at, at the expert level, but as a consumer, how do you see these these changes making their way out to the consumer, and how is the consumer empowered to speed up the kind of thing the system that they want? Well, here goes my pitch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see consumers follow what we're doing at Greenfield. And, yeah. and I'll tell you why, because we're going to make food on us, all of it, uh, either directly or through everyone else suddenly being pressured to mm-hmm. account what they're doing because of what the, the capabilities we're unleashing now. Mm-hmm. And so um, if a consumer wants their food to start with being honest, um, meaning chemicals and how it was raised, then I think that's step one, actually. Flavor, I agree with you. That's why people buy things, but they also buy them for health, mm-hmm. right? And so um, you've got to have both. And yeah. there's no reason that those two things work together, actually, right? As we're mm-hmm. discussing. But that that really is Greenfield's working towards being a consumer brand now. Mm-hmm. And we think the biggest following in the world sitting there waiting for us. Because I don't think anyone could trust their food right now at the shelf. Yeah, absolutely. I I think the marketing, um, just around regenerative. I mean, it's not just regenerative. It's it's every aspect you can imagine. And it's not just food. It's every product. You've been in a lot of different industries. You you know how it is out there. But I think there is the last two generations being digital natives. They've grown up with all of this stuff around them all the time. And um, they've gotten very skeptical about the glossy looking ad or the beautiful looking farm or the, you know, the stuff that does appeal to what you wish it would be, but knowing that just because you have a beautiful marketing doesn't mean <laughs> that the product is what they say it is or that, that that it's selling. And so this ability now to track things, I mean, my gosh, my, my husband loses his keys. So I put a little tracker thingy on it and you can, you know, you can find it on your phone, wherever, wherever yeah. it is. I mean, now our ability to track things in our everyday lives is so great that we're used to that concept and we kind of expect more access to it. And like what you're doing is not just honest, but traceable, traceable all the way through in a way that that hasn't been as as available in the past. And maybe you could talk more about that and how, because it's not just the work you do, you work with other farmers and other 
partners to kind of build these supply chains that you're working on, right? You know, it's interesting, right? So the challenge with these all of these things is what facilities are in place. You know, you can grow the crops. Mm-hmm. That's not a problem. You can source the seed. You can grow the crop. You can do it the right way. But what happens after that is always the challenge, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do you uh, separate and delineate your supply chains? And so, you know, with with, with the pet food, with Canada that we've been doing, um, how do you, you know, make sure that the stuff that's grown regenerative, you're aware of and, and, and test it properly for toxins and distribute it properly and make sure it's safe, first and foremost. And then the other thing is over time, how do you differentiate um, that in storage? And a lot of times it's as simple as seed storage, scheduling in your plant, um, what you're making, anything like that. And I think that's the real challenge out there is um, how do you go from this to that, because you can't just drop all that, mm-hmm. right? Because this yeah. is what people are buying today. Right. And if you're a new brand and you don't have that legacy stuff, who's going to do all that post-harvest processing, storage, and distribution for you? Yeah. Right. And that's really um, the fundamental challenge. So when we, in my opinion, that exists, I mean, you know, I guess I'm looking at from a greenfield perspective, we can raise any crop we want now. It's just a matter of months now without chemicals, right? But how do you carry that through to consumer in a way that's cost efficient enough, right? I have a loaf of bread in my possession right now that costs $13. Get to my house, got two of them. Yeah. Um, and I, I know the guy started it and and we're, we're meeting next week, but it's um, I'm sure he's smart enough to know a $13 loaf of bread has an extremely limited audience. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I would imagine it got to 13 a loaf. We'll find out when I meet with them, but because of all the handling costs, all the things that they've had to do to get to this point, mm-hmm. right? And wanting to not lose money hand over fist on it in the interim and sort of proof of concept. So that really, it's an interesting thing because actually building facilities and all that is one of the easier things to capitalize than taking all the risk on the crop front, right? Mm-hmm. So, but it doesn't exist yet. Not well, that's that's a theme too that's that's come up throughout um, our show and obviously our community. The Axtons have had to build a mill uh, to to mill their flour to get it to market. Um, Jennifer Coer in Ohio has had to add a, a rice mill to to mill her uh, the the rice that she's getting from Adam Chapel, you know, yep. regeneratively grown to get it out to market because. People weren't willing to do it for them. I mean, the infrastructure didn't want it. They didn't want to change it. They didn't want to specialize. Or um, and uh, same with you know Deanna Lozinski in North Dakota. She's <laughs> and you know you guys are having like there's this real theme of in order to get this better product out, the 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 farmers are or partners of the farmers are having to build the processing and the distribution, which is incredibly expensive and risky. And that was part Derek said last time too, like that's why it's so important for consumers to zero in on these brands that are making it possible and bringing it to them in a form that they can use because they hear all the time and I hear all the time and I'm sure you do it. It's so maddening. Oh, if only more farmers would, if only more farmers would change the way they grow. And certainly there's room for improvement there, certainly, but more farmers would change very quickly if there were a processing system that would take and reward what they're doing. And, yep. you know, so the fact yep. that all of these 
great people. They're fantastic people have to take on this additional role of becoming a mill owner and operator. Uh, it's it's inspiring, but it's incredibly frustrating to me too. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it's it's a lot of risk for a farmer to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing what those guys are doing, by the way, all, all three. Well, of you stuff. too. And that's to your point about the call to consumers to follow along on these brands, to understand the difference. There's a massive difference between a small startup brand or entrepreneur brand that has a good idea, has a good recipe, has a better, you know, a better cookie or whatever. There's a huge difference between that and a farmer generated brand that has taken on the added risk of milling their own ingredient because now they can know from the very beginning of that seed all the way through to the ingredient, what's been done and how it's been managed and the care that goes into it. It They are the real version of the beautiful sunrise video clip. <laughs> But how do they tell? How do they get through the marketing? How do well, you I mean, have marketing background? You you understand that's, well, that? That's what we're doing. I mean, we are. Yeah. My belief is Greenfield. When people, when we really start marketing, which we we just have started. If you look mm-hmm. at the side and we're getting after it, is people gravitate to robots because we, for some reason, think technology is the greatest thing ever. Absolutely, uh, it's they're very cool. <laughs> Personally, I think it's pretty cool. What you know, Derek and and yeah, and of course, of course, going, but. That's what culture we like new shiny things, right? Yeah. And so, uh, believe me, when we release the next robot, it's about as shiny cool as it gets. And I think mm-hmm. there's this massive latent demand, just like Tesla and Cork for electric vehicles. You know, mm-hmm. I lived in LA, I, you know, was around enough people knowing it was a constant conversation about electric cars not existing because the incumbents couldn't figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to, they didn't have the wherewithal, it didn't yeah. make any sense for them. It, it, so along comes Elon Musk, who basically lays it all on the line, gets it done, and now everyone's racing to follow him. Mm-hmm. But remember, uh, no one knew who that dude was 11, 12 years ago. Nobody, yeah. right? Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Outside of Silicon Valley, nobody knew. I taught an entrepreneurship class. Not one kid in that room knew, hmm. right? Back then, mm-hmm. everyone knows, right? And my point is, he tapped latent demand mm-hmm. for electric vehicles. What we're doing Greenfield is tapping latent demand for chemical-free, absolutely transparent food. So that's where we're going. And if you look at the number of followers Tesla has versus General Motors versus, right, why would you follow General Motors? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, I think that that all these things we're doing, Sarah, and what you're doing here and what Deanna's doing and what Derek's doing, what Jennifer's doing, what Jill's doing, it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. Right. The co-founder of Greenfield, Carl, he's just an advisor now, but he used to say to me, Clint, what we're doing is inevitable mm. because it is. Yeah. And so anyone who wants to doubt it, or I'll put them in the same category of all the people I've been dealing with for 25 years <laughs> that basically said, ah, and then they doubt. And then they say, you're tilting at windmills. And then of course you're right. And so, and of course they don't call you up, by the way, to tell you, yeah. oh, you're right. <laughs> And and so it's just a matter of time because of what you're doing this for. The flavor is truly unique and it's different. It's better. It's healthier for you. Um, even if the herbicides are in it, it's still better for you than, uh, you know, without, right? You get better mm-hmm. nutrients and it's just better, period. And uh, of course, there will always probably be a place for Wonder Bread. Of right? course. Yeah. It's yeah. always going to be yeah. there. You know, I mean, if you study grain milling history, you know, a little bit, I mean, that was a big, the wealthy people wanted the, the, 
you know, and I haven't went and charted the timelines, but wealthy people back when they came out of white, you know, white milling, mm-hmm. I think that's probably when you saw the paintings, they all started getting really fat, so <laughs> looking unhealthy. <laughs> that's a good, uh, uh, I don't know, good. but uh, you know, I, I'm not disparaging Wonder Bread at all. I ate as a kid and, you know, but uh, it's, you know, I, I just think what we're looking at here is you should have all these choices and they should mm-hmm. be honest choices and you should know yeah. what you're going to buy. I'll eat a hot dog once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll exactly. Let yeah. me drink a cup. Mm-hmm. You know, the point is not to drink it all the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. And to try other things that are healthier for me. That's all we're trying to bring into existence is you have options. You can trust your options. If you want to make bad choices, that's up to you. Yeah. And I think that because I've seen, you know, a lot of consumer research for, you know, five years or more that just always talks about this, the strong desire that consumers have for, you know, particularly again, this younger generation, they, they've lost a lot of faith in institutions, which I don't know why, (laughs) but um, so they, they shifted more toward, well, I can, I can make smaller change, but real change in how I purchase things and what I buy. And so that's part of why, part of what drives this desire to, to know who's doing what, and, you know, and that's a noble thing. So, um, to be able to put real metrics and real um, yeah. authenticity to that—that's that's what I am so excited about. With, and I think your robots are going to empower that for not just not just the supply chains you're building, but for all the people that use those robots, because then they can create those systems and bring that cost down and and add that the, those values into their supply chains too. Well, and I think let's talk about the other side of this. Um, we're in the worst drought in the history of where I'm at. Um, right now, I haven't planted any fall crops. Wow. Uh, there's simply no moisture, even though I've been regenerative from no-till for four, four to five years, depending on the piece of ground. And um, and we graze sheep and the whole deal. But there is almost no moisture, and you certainly can't get deep enough with a drill to, to put it in. And you're in south-central Kansas, just to remind yeah, that's right. people. But yeah. basically, from here and everywhere west, you can mm-hmm. forget about it for the most part, uh, even in Southwest Nebraska, where we also do have operations, uh, they got two inches of rain and it's like not going to last, mm. right? They need nine inches of rain over four weeks to even get back to where we could, they could grow the crops they're used to growing. That's what I've been told. When we grow, like you're recommending, we do no-till we're, we're because we want to, it's about the microbes. When we do cover crops, when we do it the right way, when you rotate your crops, and we get these unique flavor properties because of that and the seed we choose, you're also storing a lot of carbon underground. Mm-hmm. And that absolutely has to happen. But I really think at the end of the day, there's 250 million broad acre acres in the United States alone. And there's, I think, a couple billion globally, you could argue. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of carbon. If you can put a thousand or two thousand pounds of carbon underneath the ground annually, and you compare that to a gallon of gas is about 20 pounds of CO2. Um, the numbers add up pretty quick, and um, that's really what we need to be doing. Well, especially since that's those same practices that you're talking about also store more water underground. So at the same time, it's making that system more resilient in the short term. So it's it's just great all around. <laughs> yeah, it is. We would the, the crops we raised this summer would have never made it if um, if it wasn't no till on the on the soil that we're on. There's no mm-hmm. way. You know, yeah. five years, forget about it. Would have never made it. Well, this is this has been great. Are there any uh, final thoughts you want to kind of wrap up with, or or remind consumers about, and and maybe share your Actually, website? Actually, there is yeah, there there is a really important thing, uh, yeah. just in terms of food and flavor. Um, when we have the hydroponic stuff, one of the things my cousin did a little study, 
And um, it was about uh, nutrient profile and flavor from the time we harvested it to the shelves huh. versus coming from a long distance. And it was amazing, but mostly for, you know, on what we were growing hydroponically, the difference in, in details. But basically, there's a certain amount of time that, you know, it would just go off a cliff in terms of the value to you as a human and, and probably the flavor and all that. Hmm. And uh, it was very interesting. And my big takeaway from that was proximity matters yeah. on some of these things. When we're talking about fresh produce, right? And so proximity might actually matter as much or more than how it was growing in some scenarios. For example, I think hydroponic lettuce is growing 30 minutes from the grocery stores and you bought it two or three days after it was harvested. You're better off than whatever you got from California. It might have been grown using a better method, but by the time it gets trucked there, um, they've lost a lot of that value. Mm-hmm. And so those are interesting things, right? I'm not a huge, given I have greenhouses, I know the downside of it. I'm not a huge proponent of that style of growing, but I think it has its place because of what I just said. Um, that freshness matters too. That's that's a very good point. You know, the and it's why we know that when we have a garden and we go out and pick something from it and bring it in, there's just nothing better. You can't get any better taste. Than no, you can. You will never beat your own garden. Right. That's so. that's a fact. You know, or if you have your own greenhouse, I'm always surprised people don't build more kind of just small greenhouses for themselves. I think so it's just a, a yeah. real mystery of what it of what it takes or or how complicated. I think so. Yeah, and I always encourage people just go build a small one, and, and I tell them, and, and don't try to grow in the summer, grow in the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're in this where we're at, you know, in North, um, grow in the winter because actually we we grow greens. We've already planted, so you'll like this. We have cereal rye walkways. Oh. So you walk on cereal rye, it just started oh, coming up. That's good. nice. And then we have the stuff we're growing in the soil, in the ground, <laughs> the greenhouses, and all that food goes to greenfield employees. Oh, cool. Oh, that's great. So building robots and the greenhouses are right next to it. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's that's what we're doing. And so another greenfield employee and myself, you know, we in the in the early mornings every other day go out there and plant stuff and get it going. And I tried it last winter. The interesting thing is it doesn't take a lot of energy to heat a greenhouse in the winter for greens. Um, and that's what we found out. Actually, the greenhouses are much more productive in the winter. You know, yeah. can't grow. I, I used to grow tomatoes when there's snow everywhere. All the oh, time. wow. Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> that was a mistake. <laughs> but you could grow basil or? or Not basil. Not no. basil, no. Uh, basil needs to be kept in the winter. When you've got high humidity, basil needs to be kept most likely over 60 degrees uh-huh. minimum. So oh. trying to get that overnight when it's 20 ambient or with wind is is is, is a losing. I mean, it's just going to cost you. Yeah, a lot, a lot of cars. So which greens? Which greens should they grow? Yeah, spinach is number one. Oh yeah, okay. Put it in right now if you. That's have good. Mm-hmm. Um, spinach, romaine, radishes, carrots. Uh, we're about to try leeks, mm. uh, onions. Thinking about potatoes. I don't know if they're going to work. So it's probably mm. a little late for that. Oh oh, we do bok choy. Um, oh good. Yeah. All kinds of, yeah, Asian greens. Uh, we do Chinese cabbage will be done by somewhere between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So mm. these huge, you know, we make soups out of them. Uh, cabbage that mm. runs with cabbage in the ground. Yeah. So most of your greens in that, you know, what we do is you turn the thermostat to 35 degrees. Huh. In the greenhouse. And so it doesn't freeze. We keep it there. And so we cut firewood off my farm and or with propane right now, you know, mm-hmm. but I think if we, if you build a greenhouse, do the got method, do it where you circulate, dig underground. If I did, had to do it again, I would do it that way. Mm-hmm. You probably have almost no heating cost at all, if any. That's fantastic. It sounds so wholesome when you're chopping wood to fuel the, the greenhouse. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Robust. That's a good story. Sarah, I always tell you, I've, I've done a lot. I've done a lot of crazy things, including <laughs> have a burning log in my arms running across oh, the Oh, no. <laughs> so first time I lit up my stove and didn't know what the hell I was doing. And the wind showed up and I didn't understand angles coming off buildings, pushing. Smoke and but you do now. You do now. Oh, I know a lot of nearly useless stuff. If you were just smarter than me to research it right in the first place. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. And where can people find your, uh, your, your company and, and what you're doing with the supply chain and follow you? Yeah. Greenfieldincorporated.com. You can see what we're what we're up to now. Till two two weeks ago, we had one of the worst websites ever to get venture capital in history, but now we have a decent. Uh, you know, and you're on social media too. You're on you know Facebook and Instagram and all of that. Yeah, LinkedIn there. really is the one. If, if they want to follow me personally, it would be LinkedIn. LinkedIn okay. Or, but Greenfield's on all of those. Greenfield uh, Incorporated. So Dot com. Yep. Okay. Yep. It's on all those places. Well, great. Well, thanks so much, Clint, for what you're doing and for taking time to, to share what what all this exciting stuff is leading to. And um, as you know, I'm a huge fan. And so I'll continue to cheer along the sidelines and encourage people to, to come your way because I think it, it, it matters quite a bit. Likewise, likewise. You've been listening to Tasting Terroir, a podcast made possible by a magical collaboration between the following companies and supporters, all working together to help farmers, chefs, food companies, and consumers to build healthier soil for a healthier world. Rhizoterra. Owned by Dr. Joe Clapperton, Rhizoterra is an international food security consulting company providing expert guidance for creating healthy soils that yield tasty, nutrient-dense foods. Check us out at rhizoterra.com. That's R-H-I-Z-O-T-E-R-R-A.com. And the Global Food and Farm online community, an ad-free global social network and soil health streaming service that provides information and connections that help you apply the science and practice of improving soil health. Join us at globalfoodandfarm.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through our Patreon account at patreon.com slash tastingterroir. Patrons receive access to our full-length interviews and selected additional materials. Patrons will also have the opportunity to submit questions that we will answer on the podcast. Tune in next week to hear more interviews and insights with myself, Sarah Harper, and Dr. Jill Clapperton, as well as the regenerative farmers, chefs, and emerging food companies in the global food and farm online community and beyond. If you like our work, please give us a five-star rating and share the podcast with your friends. Thanks so much for listening and for helping us get the word out about this new resource to taste the health of your food. Until next week, stay curious, keep improving, and don't stop believing that better is possible when knowledge is available.